because my God says to be good to you. I think the first thing that we should be thinking, because we're precisely because we're in that situation, which we've all got variable reels in a reality that is arguable and that we all rely on each other, then the first point of call is, okay, so what am I, what, what ethical obligations do I have in the first instance? Hey, welcome everyone. So today it's Alex Phoebe on the podcast. This would be the first podcast we did, which is a video episode and in the lockdown. So hopefully you enjoy that. Alex is a writer and some of you might already know him from his work and the books he have written, Lucia and Playthings. I put the link down below the episode. Um, one of his new book is More Do which is coming in August 2020. Now, if you are interested in subjective experience, psychology, or our relationship with reality, these are the perfect books to explore. Can't wait to have a conversation with him. Let's just welcome Alex Phoebe. Yeah. So it's uh, if anyone want to check out, it's on... Uh, uh, Spotify. So if you put scholars in spotlight, you'll find it. And otherwise, okay. if you just put scholars in spotlight Greenwich on Google, there are right. a few different blogs and places where you can find, find the part. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll certainly have a look. Perfect. So the first time I think I had conversation with you was in 2018, June. It was, uh, I think it was 13th of June. Uh, okay. Because memory. It's just all, uh, the reason why I remember it is because it's book festival, so it's nearly at the similar. Ah, of course, okay. Dates, yeah, and we talked about Hyperion Dan Simmons, right? Uh, <laughs> and it's a good book. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah, I would definitely want yeah. to explore that book some some other time, but yeah, uh, sure. But yeah, I, I I always wanted to have conversation with you after that because it was this like a. a conversation while an event big event was going on so we can't mm. we couldn't talk more than five minutes so uh, sure. finally this is the best excuse to talk to you to, to book your time <laughs> and uh, do the podcast okay let's maybe start with your latest book probably that might be an interesting i think it's a bit of a different book than the few ones you have done before if i'm correct yeah i mean well i don't know to be honest um it's certainly generically different. It's in a, in a different genre, so that, that's that's true. Uh, and from a from a, an outsider's point of view, then definitely it it doesn't look the same as the the last two that have been published, because they were both um, obvious. They took a, a kind of real historical figure um, who has been written about academically and uh, in all sorts of different ways, and dealt with that as the main protagonist. Um, so this isn't. This is a, a fantasy novel. Uh, so it deals with people who don't exist in places that don't exist, doing things that no one's ever done, uh, that no one's written about and no one knows anything about. <laughs> so certainly it does look as if it's completely different. But from my point of view, it's it's no different from the kind of material that I usually write. The themes are the same. The attention that I pay to the writing is the same. My process is the same. Um, and it's one of those things that people don't always remember when they're thinking about writers is that the things that writers do uh, and the things that readers read aren't the same thing. Um, quite often, the material that you eventually see un in the bookshop under a person's name 
uh, while representative of the stuff they do isn't by any means anything more than a sample. So this book feels like as much an Alex Phoebe novel uh, as any of the other three, uh, despite the fact that it would be the first one that anyone would have read of mine that is in genre, because all of my stuff so far has been sold to uh, publishers of literary fiction. Um, and now they're branching out of Gally Beggar of, of wanting to, um, I guess, take a risk on doing fantasy, um, but mostly because they know they've already read my stuff and they know that it's miles, not in the same genre, at least the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm known for writing. So it's not that unusual. It's uh, so uh, it's I, when you were mentioning it, I realized that it's you're right. Actually, some of the fantasy novels would make, you know, you, you create characters and voices and you associate details. Some of the other mm. works you have also done has to do with a lot of voices and a lot of uh, internal subjective worlds, which might yeah. feel very much somehow similar. It's, it's actually accurate. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there is one of the things that um, has always been of interest to me is the idea of, of what reality is, uh, particularly reality as it's represented um, in literature. Excuse me a second. Um, and my feeling is that regardless of, of your subject matter, regardless of the kind of uh, superficial content, um, all forms of literary practice, all writing novels are um, fantasies of one type or another, even if they represent themselves as reals. So with something like Playthings, it's relatively obvious because it's about a schizophrenic judge. Uh, that that person's reality is is not the same reality as one that you could say was um, scientifically and objectively and empirically provable. Um, and with Lucia Joyce, who also suffered mental health problems and was essentially silenced, any writing on her can't really be real either. So when you come to publish then a piece of fantasy writing um, and people say, ah, well, this is a change because it's it's fantastic, then it's facing the fact that all writing is fantastic. They're just fantasies about different things. So if, um, if you can consider literary fiction to be a fantasy about the real, uh, not all literary fiction, but some literary fiction, uh, particularly English literary fiction, could be seen as a fantasy about the real, then fantasy is, is a fantasy about the unreal. Um, and so to a certain extent, are people who have uh, mental illnesses so those things, fantasies about the unreal, even though they are set in the real. So it's much more complicated than thinking, oh, well, now you've gone from realism into fantasy. The same techniques apply, the same uh, um, interest applies. I think the difference with, with this new book is that um, it's much less focused on, as you were pointing out, one, one voice and one experience, and much more focused on um, a world. So it's like broadening the fantasy away from interiority and then kind of subjectivity into something a bit broader yeah uh, one research i was reading about uh fiction people who either write fiction or read more fiction uh pretty uh, well done research which is about the people who read fiction as character or they are more emotionally robust because they are mm they are playing the real world scenario in their head and understanding yeah, sure. and how they can, you know, somehow hold various different points. I think points I saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there is, um, I can never remember who does, who made various quotes 
or, or the exact quote, <laughs> terrible memory, but there's something along the lines of uh, someone who doesn't read lives one life and someone who does read lives a hundred lives. And I think that that is, is, is definitely the case. And I think there's a case to be made for writing of any kind, but fictional writing um, in particular for developing empathy and, and sympathy to a certain extent and, and kind of giving people the opportunity to um, virtualize perhaps trauma and events uh, that might happen to them so that when they come to um, deal with them in their real lives that they are not pre-prepared but um, as you put more robust uh, in terms of the kind of level and range of things that they can deal with because they've seen those things happen uh, in fictional worlds. I love it that you mentioned about exploring reality because uh, I got this word from this I think he uh, yeah he's a writer uh, Eric Davis um he he uh, he write a lot about weird and uh, uh mm. cyber uncanny experiences uh, sure. uh um, <clears throat> 70s uh, uh like um I, how to classify well i can't classify it it's just he write a, a, about a lot of things cyborgs mm. and transcendence experiences but he sure. classify uh these things as a real and reality so real is something which is you know let's say just just a, a placeholder word um, where mm. something is very objective outside and real uh, reality is our relationship to that real yeah sure and it yeah well i think i mean I'm, it's particularly for the writer the the blending between those two things is is pretty much um complete so and there's a, a tendency, I think, on the part of, of critics and readers to imagine that novels uh, and, and, say, factual writing differ in some way, uh, in that they, they're allowed to speak about different things. And I think that it's a mistake to imagine that you have access to that real. Um, I think you have access to your reality in that sense. Um, regardless of how you pitch your book, regardless of whether you say this is a factual book or a fictional book or a fictional book that deals with facts or a factual book that deals with fiction, whatever it might be, um, you're always kind of trapped in this reality situation. And the real is essentially not accessible to you. Um, not not through, through words, certainly, I would have thought. Yeah, so uh, I want to ask a bit about uh, what is one of your early experiences or just overall, I mean, I don't think there's one early experience so probably just a collection of different experiences, which somehow motivate you to write about um, a lot of these characters inner world, because it's a, it's a theme. I would say that you have to explore one character and their inner world from a very subjective point of view. I don't know if I'm representing it correctly, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's accurate. Um, and the answer to that question is I have no idea. I mean, I've, it's not that I think when you come to sit down to do something, um, you have certain intentions, okay? And let's imagine there was an, an early Alex, you know, from the past um, who wanted to do things. Um, when you sit down to do those things, then the act of doing it dictates what eventually gets done one way or another. So you quickly come to understand the things that you're interested in doing, um, the things that you're 
capable of doing the things that other people are interested in reading when you have done them. And that kind of takes out of the picture any kind of um, intentional, I'm going to go in and do this because you've, it, it never works that well. You never, you never get to do the thing that you thought you were going to do and you're never quite sure what it was you were going to do anyway. But I think realistically, to a more honest answer to the question, um, thinking about it is that I was always interested in fantasy stuff when I was a kid. So, uh, and fantasizing. Um, and I, you know, it's not like I had a difficult childhood uh, <laughs> compared to a lot of people, but, um, or that I was lonely. But I was certainly antisocial. I think I, I preferred to be in reading uh, than out up and down the street kicking a football around, uh, for example. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing was imaginative play um, of one type or another. I used to play with my brother a lot and make up stories for him uh, and storytelling and, and fantasizing of one type or another was always really central to the kind of stuff that I enjoyed. So I think that once you start doing that uh, and you kind of understand the world through thinking about things imaginatively from reading books from understanding medium films and tv and all those other kind of things um eventually it becomes obvious that you need to look in inward otherwise you don't get to um, write your characters properly so i've always been more interested in what makes people tick and i guess psychologically speaking that there may be some kind of unresolved issue with understanding the people around me um, and how they work and how the world works and uh, it's very very I mean I can't understand why everybody wouldn't do that so perhaps I'm just overgeneralizing from my own position but um, that would seem to be a, a reasonable way to go into the world is to imagine what it is that you are thinking uh, when you see that person and then you have to try and understand who they are and what they're about and I think that just represents itself it represented itself very clearly in in the first few books that I wrote because they were very, very focused inward on on particular, particularly um, like aberrant psychologies, and I don't really know why that is. Um, there are lots of glib answers I could give. One of them, I mean, it, it usefully is that my wife was working as a in a mental health advocate um, during the writing of some of the material, so she was working for Mind, the charity Mind at um, St Thomas's Hospital in London, um, and dealing with people who were sectioned under the Mental Health Act, for example. So people who were incapable of leaving by virtue of the fact that their reality didn't gel with the reality that the rest of the world experienced, particularly schizophrenics, who were very, very um, definite that the world that they lived in was true and real, despite the fact that everybody would disagree with them uh, to such an extent that if you, if you um, refuse to disavow the reality that you were uh, espousing under your schizophrenia, then you weren't allowed to leave the hospital um, ever. So then the question then became philosophically speaking for me as well, how certain is anybody of their reality? Uh, and why is it that we privilege some types of, of realities over others? And why lots of us can march around with very unusual ideas um, and not be um, imprisoned for them uh, in one way or another. And it seemed like an interesting place to, to work at as a novelist. I mean, you can make up things and you can make stories and entertain people. But also there's the kind of impetus that you might want to try and understand. Uh, injustices is too kind of uh, <laughs> vainglorious a term, but things that might have gone wrong in the world. <clears throat> and the kind of things that Emma was looking at were very much things where you thought, oh, but this is not fair. It's not fair that this person is... Uh, is um, 
kept imprisoned on the basis of their beliefs, even if they are pathological, and what, how far are we as individuals who aren't imprisoned ever away from that? And if you live in London, um, and even if you work at a university, it becomes pretty obvious that certain parts of the population, certain demographics, certain genders uh, are far more predisposed to being accused of having unacceptable realities uh, that lead them into imprisonment uh, than other people. So it's looking at that kind of, what is it to have a reality that is so aberrant to the general society that's going to get you imprisoned? So for someone like Schreber, that was uh, 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century Germany. For someone like Lucia Joyce, it was mid 20th century to late 20th century Europe and Britain. Uh, and increasingly for, for everybody, it's now <laughs> we are in a situation where yeah. you I, find yourself at the other end of, of the authorities. Yeah, I find it interesting, especially that... Um, here, where we have a predominantly rationalist, materialistic uh, belief mm. systems, something which is pathologically, let's say, misfiring, according to that view, uh, which we were just you were describing, it mm. makes more sense to acknowledge that uh, that oh yeah, it is of course it's a hardware issue, so that's not the yeah. person's problem. And some of the cultures have actually found a different way around it. I'm, I'm sure you might have heard that they consider these people something of a like a gift they have a gift those they can talk yeah, sure. to the other type well, as, i mean frankly we do that in this country and a lot of those people are called novelists uh, or they'll be called people who um eccentrics uh, and then it, eventually you, you come down to what i think is unfortunately the case is that it tends to be a class issue and often a race issue um it's a form of disciplinary action on the part of the state against people who it would seek to uh, <laughs> oppress. I can't think of a better word for it. Um, and you know, this is why you see a, a much higher rate of schizophrenia in young black men, for example, than you do in any other demographic of, of the population. Whereas the notion, even in English literature, of the, of the wealthy aristocratic eccentric is, is very common. And yet there's no sense that any of these people are going to be put in <laughs> in prison or in a hospital from which they aren't allowed to be removed. Um, instead, we, we kind of uh, valorize their eccentricity uh, and make a big show of how amusing they all are. Um, so you, I think that there's a, a kind of very uncomfortable antagonism between eccentricity and schizophrenia, which seems to be class-based. Um, so all of those things make it a very fruitful place to write into if you're a writer because you can start looking at those um, intersections and, and work out what that means for the world and what it means you know, in terms of understanding your own reality and particularly in times like this where everything's in flux we have to now you know the idea that somehow uh, the market it was the thing that was required in order to make sure everything worked it's now being shown to be pretty much useless the market is not market for PPE, for example, is not a useful um, instrument for us in solving the coronavirus crisis, for example. And we're soon going to find out that all of those things that were unassailable realities like capitalism and markets and um, laissez-faire government of one type or another is not going to help us through these things. Um, and then we're going to have to work out, well, what are the things that are real? And suddenly some of those things that, you've, that people have been punished for believing 
Um, like, for example, the idea, I mean, you can take your pick, the idea that all uh, things have a soul, for example, if you want to take some kind of animist view, which is a kind of considered in, you know, in straight rationalist materialist culture to be a nonsense, um, might be a very useful set of ideas if we're going to have to start looking at, you know, how we're going to deal with the world in a, in a post-pandemic crisis, uh, you know, post-pandemic pre-ecological crisis. Um, so it, I think that negotiation between sense and nonsense and real and unreal and pathological and healthy, all of those things are going to be up for grabs. And you know, I think they always were. Yeah. We just we get ossified in particular materialist, rationalist ways of thinking uh, until they seem as if they must be true. Uh, and then when we find out that they don't help us, then we have to start thinking of other things that might be true. I'm like extremely interested in this kind of scientific uh, ground where people slowly are changing the beliefs. So some mm. of the astrophysicists, some of the biologists who are really well respected now are criticizing mm. the, some of the scientific models which somehow deteriorated into a very fixated state. And of course, yeah. as, as any system, it slowly starts to become a bit tyrannical and a bit fixated yeah. on, on their own. But also, I mean, I think people learn to negotiate the, the, the science often and the rational frameworks to their own ends. I mean, in this, exactly the same way that eugenics um, tried to do in the, in the 20th century, this sense that you could take um, evolution, which seems a reasonable set of, of beliefs, and then apply them in ways in which they're not useful right? or not real because they fail to understand very basic things. And I think it's possible for pseudoscientific, parascientific uh, nonsense and to, to very, be very, very close and perhaps inseparable to the layman in terms of the way that it's articulated um, as you go through, as, as things start to become kind of um, put into the public consciousness so things like rationality, things like materialism, things that have a very particular worldview tend to get debased over time um, to the point in which essentially they're being used pseudo-scientifically for people's political gains. And you know, to get back to the writing, that's largely what the first three books are about. And this next one is about how you use power. So it's it's rather than taking those... those um, uh, kind of conditional things like what what is a reality what is um what is what is it to be on the wrong side of of reality then you can move to what is it to use power and i think this is where you've where regardless of, of what real you're um you want to occupy or what real you want to believe in or what real you can justify what you do with that particularly if you're in power is 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 the problem and i think we've worked on the assumption that if you're in power, then you're, you get to do what you like with it uh, because you're in power. And consequently, you've, no one should be able to question you because you're on the right side of reality. Uh, and you must be because you have power. You've won reality. Reality is for you. Uh, and you've demonstrated your innate goodness by being successful within it. And I think very quickly, it it's becomes obvious that that's not a helpful way of, of being in the world. Um, particularly when you see someone like you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, making two billion pounds a week uh, and not then thinking, well, why don't I make this take this two billion pounds a week and use it to do something useful with? <laughs> There's nothing stopping Jeff Bezos 
being the savior and messiah of all humanity <laughs> and fixing the problems with his enormous wealth. I mean, why aren't they doing that? Where are these billionaires fixing this? I don't see anybody doing it. <laughs> I, I think the, this might be one of the reasons why you find a lot of people who think that their reality, what they believe in and what is helpful to them is the reality. So anything else. So if mm. they would can sometimes, I, I think it's just a, it's just popped in my mind. Maybe that's why the subtlety of classifying some of the fictions, which would start to question those areas, which would start to yeah, bring sure. back that otherness. Uh, they would say, oh yeah, that's escapism. And yeah. it, it somehow, I just found it, even when I was a young kid, I found it really uh, debilitating that uh, I found that this book has allowed me and uh, 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 make me able to explore who I am and my reality, uh, my my relationship mm-hmm. to the whole, and made it better. But why would you say that this is just escapism? But I, yeah. I can see the tie and the suit. Unfortunately, well, no. Ursula Le Guin is good on this. If you ever, she did a good speech when she won the National Writers Award of America, and hmm. looking at what it meant to be a realist and what it meant to write fantasy and science fiction. And those things are, have been marginalized as childish and fantastic and escapist and all those other things. Whereas realism, uh, particularly in English literature, has, has been where it's at. You've got to be, you've got to understand the real, what's the real world. And, and often the real world that realism deals with is a very privileged subset of what the world is. And it's not, doesn't tend to be about people with unusual views. It tends to be about, frankly, Oxford and Cambridge graduates and what a difficult time they have before they move into the banking sector. That, that's the, the, the literature of that part of society is very well handled by realism. Uh, or you have like the kind of direct opposite, which is people who are living on the streets. Um, and those, those two things are kind of um, are put cheek by jowl and, and occasionally uh, there's a fad for one or the other. But what, as you, I think you rightly point out, speculative work that looks in, in both science fiction and fantasy that looks at cultures, looks at technology and tries to make some kind of uh, interesting thing to say about it um, has been and still is relegated to the kind of, uh, you know, the sordid back of the bookshop where and it's, it's considered to be not something that a serious person would do. Um, and I think that's a, that's ridiculous. And I think it's politically dangerous. I think for one thing, it's, it's, a whole field of, of literary practice that people who don't get to speak like to read, for one thing. <laughs> and secondly, it doesn't fall into that, that foolish error of imagining that only upper middle class people who were Oxford and Cambridge educated are allowed to have control of, re- of reality. And we're seeing that very obviously now when you know you put a, uh, a bunch of Eastern educated PPE studying uh, career politicians in c- control of the country and they literally don't know what to do. They can't get a situation where they could get a factory up and running to produce medical equipment, which is, which is a damning condemnation of anyone's uh, ability to arrange something. I mean, it is not difficult, <laughs> should not be difficult to, with the resources of an entire state to mass produce masks. That's not the end of the world for anybody's ability to arrange something. I mean, you know, and the fact that we're, look, we're, we're left with people who are kind of shrugging and looking vague and, and don't blame me, uh, it's a difficult situation. That's not 
you shouldn't be in a situation where those people have control of the real. Um, that's that's a that's a, a bad idea. What? Everybody. Yeah, markets, as you were right, like you mentioned it before, markets were considered to be, which I, I agree, yes, markets are important if they are used. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, again, there's, I mean, who knows what the markets are actually supposed to be like? What is their actually who knows what one is yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> i mean you've got to the point where they've made it so arcane it's impossible to even understand what one is yeah true i mean if, particularly if you have complex derivatives of that you're trading in i mean what does that what does a market mean anymore when you're not even trading with the thing itself but the risk of a thing increasing or decreasing in value over a set period I mean, you know. Yeah, if, if someone is interested a bit to understand it, this uh, evolutionary biologist is named Brett Weinstein, uh, mm. or Weinstein, anyway. Uh, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> <Either> <laughs> not of, a good name. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, either of those. <laughs> Uh, he uh, he explains it as if there are four forces. You know, if you can in- include, if you can inject those four forces any in any of the ideology or phenomena, it becomes uh, like it evolves. It becomes an uh, or an organism of itself. And market mm. is one of those. And market yeah. fights for its survival, like any other yeah. organism. And but this is dangerously close to what we were saying before, which is a kind of pseudo scientific mumbo jumbo that is that is used to to hide things, I think. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case in this, in this book, but the, the, the drift between metaphorically and allegorically dealing with the real via things that aren't it is very prone to, to get you into situations where you're trying to justify doing things that you really oughtn't to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think, and it's when you start looking at that level of abstraction that it, be, it starts to become obvious to the writer that there is very little separating someone's pathological understanding of reality and, and set them some, someone's rational understanding of reality, particularly when it's predicated on metaphor and allegory, um, which is so, becomes so hard to unpick. Then all you're left with is, well, what class of person is this and, and, and are they allowed to speak? Yeah. <laughs> and if they aren't, because to describe a market as an animal and that that animal which is a market behaves in a biological way and therefore we can start to use the terms of biology to look at the terms of the market is if you were to say instead the market is an elephant and then keep on if anyone ever asks you just say the market is an elephant what do you mean well it's like it's an elephant it's a big animal and it's got a trunk and you'd be like okay well you have to come with me now and then I'll put you in the asylum when you don't get to speak anymore. Yeah. And those kind of things, it's, it's, a, it's a nuanced and very fine kind of line. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think um, he, I think he was pointing out to this fact at the end of it, as in pointing it out that how, if you, if you come from different point of views, no matter what your point, like uh, anyone's point of view of market is, like or people who defend market mm. or think that it's one of the most... Uh, crucial things without it society wouldn't function Uh, like he would use these examples to uh, say that even then it's not functional in the end Uh, like whatever view of your reality let's say is it's not functional according to the person's own full calculation who is Mm. trying to present it as something which is completely functional but it's yeah it's it's just you're right it's a very um yeah you it's it's a it's an abstraction which is 
yeah it, it's it's million uh, um, you can say factors in it for sure yeah well definitely and certainly not i mean if someone was, was to present that level of abstraction to you and that level of allegory and said okay well i believe in this aspect of it but i don't believe in that aspect of the allegory vote for me and give me all your power then you know what are you supposed to say <laughs> i mean you know say well i don't really understand what it is you're talking about uh, and even if i did i wouldn't know which side of this to come down on so consequently i don't have an opinion on whether you should be running the country or not i mean i don't know it's tricky yeah. i think you know, but Yeah, so, I don't know where we've got to. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Well, I, I actually wanted to. Uh, you might have thought a lot about maybe relationship with our trauma, and then um, oh. trying to t- trauma and writing creativity, or just in 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 general. And and when we were talking about um, belittling, let's say you know people's attempt to understand mm. what is the nature of our relationship to this thing, we are. immersion part of rather than looking at it as as a zoo let's say that's what mm. we feel most of the time we just feel like oh yeah this all reality is like a zoo and yeah. we are somehow separated but probably mm. it, it, you like is it some sort of a collective trauma not collective in a way that it's somehow linked of each of everyone but we just we are social beings and we do connect with each other through language so uh, yeah sure but i think that that's I think that's the thing that you have to remember first. I mean, I think this is the if that was something that colored everything that happened. I think this is what I'm trying to get at with the with the work, with the writing, is that regardless of all of that, regardless of what metaphors you use to describe reality, regardless of whether you might feel that one person is right and one person is wrong, uh regardless of the way that um ideology affects things, the way that beliefs of one type or another affect things or uh philosophical and intellectual frameworks there is an essential obligation to everybody else around you who is in this with you that you treat them with dignity and respect first right and not as a kind of byproduct of the market i mean not, or a byproduct of any particular way of being in the world okay i am good to you because my god says to be good to you or i am good to you because it's good for me as an employer to have good employees so i will allow you to have sick pay and annual leave because that means you work harder for me or i will make sure you get good wages because that allows you to buy my products so i will be good to you for that reason i think the first thing that we should be thinking because we're precisely because we're in that situation which we've all got variable reals in a reality that is arguable and that we all rely on each other then the first point of course is okay so what am i what ethical obligations do i have in the first instance to the to the to the culture and the world that i find myself in and not what do i think is right and now that hopefully that whatever i think is right will work out right in the end i think you you should never be in a position to to one be so certain about whatever it is that you think you know that you feel you get to act in an unethical way to people and nor should you put that as the first condition i must know the world as it is and that the world as it is should be sufficient for me to act ethically instead you should act ethically first and then worry about what the world is because it may well be that there isn't an is that the world is <laughs> yeah. it may be that there are multiple isis that the world is and none of those are pin downable yeah so best yeah. to act 
act ethically in the first instance. And, and I think that's what the books are essentially trying to say, is that no one, no matter how um, certain and definite they are about what they believe to be true, should use that as a basis for acting unethically, even if their ethical system seems then to allow for that. Like, for example, the idea that you would uh, deny your staff sick leave because you know that that means that you would take a hit financially at your um, goods warehousing factory. Right? You should, of course you should give people sick leave. Of course you should, <laughs> because they're human beings. And if they're ill, you shouldn't force them to work. Um, that is your first question. That, that, that reminds me of, uh, I think, some practitioner of uh, Buddha. Uh, uh, hmm. He's a historian, but I forgot his... Um, I don't remember who the person is, so I'm not going to mention it. But uh, they, they were saying that, well, you can look at, uh, you know, uh, places where Buddhism itself exists that it's probably not really working properly but but yeah. then the guy said that oh actually uh, this guy said well it's a really long game i mean you, who <laughs> yeah, says yeah yeah who says that it's only few thousand years the goal is that each and every single one of us do need to wake up and see from yeah. each other's eyes so yeah it's a long game it is a long game. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. I think that it's both long and quite short because it is long in that the race is long. Um, but like a marathon, you need to be ensuring that you're running in, in approximately the right direction. Otherwise, you never get to the end. I mean, you know that it's not okay for you to act like an asshole all the time. You know that. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to wait to be told. Um, it's just that somehow some people have been led to believe that it's okay for them to act badly. Yeah. Uh, because they're privileged and good uh, and you can they can do whatever they like because reality is such that it supports them and you know i don't you know obviously the striving for nirvana and and you know kind of universal enlightenment uh, across you know multiple generations regenerations is clearly a long game but at the same time it has smaller individual failures and successes to to reach some kind of accommodation with the world Etc. Etc. I don't know why. Why did we get onto to politics anyway? Like, <laughs> I can't help it. Markets. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, markets. I mean, we it. we are still fun. putting politics into a larger context, so it's it's yeah, it's true. interesting. Uh, yeah, and I think it is politics is very much to do with your idea of what the real is, and to do with what the self is, and all of those things. Um, it's you kind of it's when you start taking those things for granted. And that they they are something that means something outside of your local situation. Then I think you get yourself in terrible trouble because um, it lets you do it lets you decide what's right and wrong. Uh, and the moment you're deciding what's right and wrong in that way, you're bound to make mistakes. You know, it's it's wrong for lazy people to be rewarded for their laziness. So, but, yeah. You know, it's wrong. Yeah. You know, it's clearly wrong. You can't be rewarded for laziness. Then the trouble comes in, well, what's laziness? <laughs> and then you're in a problem because <laughs> you're just finding laziness and there's always going to be margins to that laziness. No one's pure lazy. And even the people who are pure lazy doesn't stop them doing well. There's lots of very lazy people who do really well. This, this is, a, this is a, now I think it's, 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 that's where it gets really hard probably, I don't know, for me at this point, where it's, mm. it's yes, there is a subjective, so there's a self-reflective subjective reality that's where the culture you know is coming from and we have the superpower in one sense that we can you know separate a little bit um from this deep now 
and you know plan into the future and mm. just re-exist somewhere somewhere in between those timelines and then we can create these virtual realities and then we have this mirror where we just self-reflect and distort although as you are saying we gotta still you know rely on each other in this crazy mm-hmm. situation and still gotta go towards a bit of a direction which is not leading all of us and life into some yeah, sort of a ledge not? because it has happened many times on earth itself so yeah please and in very recent memory you know i mean sometimes i've become annoyed there's an argument that um that the nuclear deterrent has prevented war in europe since the second world war and i was i hear people say things like that and then i think well that's true if you ignore all of the wars that have happened in europe particularly the bosnian conflict i mean we're not i mean i shouldn't laugh we're looking at a situation where on mainland europe there have been um genocides in what is supposed to be the kind of the home of the rational west you know and and you look at the states and it's barbaric kind of um oppression that black people suffered there daily i mean it's just a, a nonsense to imagine that any of these things are, are, are good and we are all kind of galloping cheerfully off in one direction on the assumption that everything is right and um it only takes you know very small things a disease that realistically um is only what well, what is it four months old and it's with ground the entire culture to a stop um and that's not the first time this has happened you know just the spanish flu is you know the most obvious and that's within some people's living memory i mean increasingly few people but there were people who were alive in 1918 and yet none of us seem to think that that was worth bothering with uh, <laughs> like despite the fact that it's blindingly obvious that it was there and you know and it's a facing and overwriting the whole ecological kind of nightmare that was we're all going through at the moment but runaway productive overproductive capitalism is the i mean we know that we know it's causing global warming we know it's ruining <clears throat> the planet we know and we're doing it anyway because it seems to be the right thing to do <laughs> it's uh, all of those things and and to say well, we do rely on each other but we rely on the past of us and the future of us too and and all of those things are, are things that we have to bear in mind um we can't you know just i mean who even wants this crap anymore? yeah i mean i don't know about you but i mean i've joined the lockdown i've kind of come to the conclusion that i don't really need any of those things that that i seem to have thought that i might have needed providing the food comes in and like and no one's hassling me i'm okay i think you know and i i can remember times in my life when if i'd have tried to get through this situation in those times i'd have been that i'd have had been in serious trouble i mean like there were times when I, you've not had money for electricity because you had an electricity meter and the key wasn't charged up and you had no cash right and that was the only way you could get how do people how does that work now how do people with electricity keys get electricity right i don't understand i mean you would rely on so many different people in order for you just to feel roughly comfortable in this situation and anything any of those things that went wrong if our boiler broke and this was the winter then we'd be in trouble if the water went down if the internet went down i'd be absolutely that's it there'd be nothing i couldn't work they'd have to fire me or something i don't know what they'd do <laughs> now is the most important person in my life whoever it is who keeps the internet running i guess you know they probably are Numbed no down. yeah yeah i agree it's yeah it's 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 a it's a odd question very odd where we have separated ourselves 
from these natural signals which somehow had some check on us like i don't know yeah is in wars you have kind of detract like kind of you know maybe i don't know maybe it was a lot of suffering we built walls we built cities okay and then we have maybe disconnected a lot from if you want to call it nature itself which was yeah. providing us guidance at, at you know and it's and other people i mean i i sit and and talk to the students and and we talk about stuff while we're doing because people write about all sorts of different things in workshops uh, you look at other people's writing and 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 talk about them and it often people will write about how terrible the world is and uh, the ethics of the things that they're doing and then we look around and we're all wearing like stuff from primark and like whatever clothes you happen to have on and everyone knows that those are made by slave children in other countries everybody knows that and they know that's why it's so cheap and they know that's why we have we you know you know when you go to morley's fried chicken that whatever the chicken that you've eaten from morley's fried chicken had a terrible life terrible 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 life and that the whole of the culture that you've you're very much benefiting from is predicated on suffering right and somehow we've managed to make it so that we don't have to think about that all, all the time yeah and and i think you know the pandemic the, the way that people are dealing with the pandemic here on the news is is like okay this is a terrible problem for the west and it is a terrible problem for the west but it's going to be even worse for places where they don't have a decent medical system because we've enforced generations of debt famine debt on them and are forcing them to pay back the the interest payments and not invest in their own infrastructure i mean what is going to happen in places well how are we going to deal with that people worried that you know they couldn't deal with syrian refugees what are you going to do when you the the entire infrastructure of countries throughout the world is just collapsed yeah yeah that's that's i mean i i just want to figure right now about my own guilt this is made by made yeah, in pakistan <laughs> and this i is... think that's probably the way it works the whole time <laughs> yeah, yeah i think that we've we've this is one of the reasons i think if you look at chomsky for example who will looks at the way the media treats the way we live our lives and forces us into an endless state of paranoid anxiety precisely for that reason so that we always think i've got to look after myself got to look after myself got to look after me and mine first because if i don't then no one's going to and forget all of those people far away i'll deal with them once my safety has, has been assured and i think that is precisely how we end up in a situation where we don't come into those checks and balances from either nature or from other people it's because we've we've we draw in our vision so so closely on the people around us and forget the suffering of everybody yeah. else there's a, there's a beautiful documentary called true cost uh, about this yeah. uh, textile industry and the fashion industry uh, right. uh, anyone interested in this topic it's yeah, yeah, amazing it. yeah for sure see i i love depressing the hell out of myself that's oh <laughs> that's <laughs> sounds I mean, what can you do i there's, mean it's yeah. a yes. terrible world <laughs> well, uh, well actually uh, there are some some something positives uh, coming out of um okay. very scientific like really dominantly scientific people who have authority so there's this oh. guy whose name is Jeffrey West and the other guy he's a astrophysicist and the other guy is uh, David Krakar they have okay. institute of san jose uh, and they are working on complexity science and they are trying to you know break down these walls and the barriers and one of the research they have done 
beautiful. It's about this growth, this market and the mm-hmm. cities. They said cities is beautiful. I mean, it's one of the, let's say, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant, um, best, one of the best inventions for, for humans in, in one sense. Uh, if you are looking at growth and if you're looking at uh, how you can um, generate a lot of power, which you can then uh, direct towards achieving something. But then they, they have done a really good calculations and it's, it's fascinating the calculation, how they have compared cities with other organisms because cities are not like separated from mm. our world itself. Uh, so our biology is based in the suns and the stars and somehow, sure. and, and all of, uh, all of the calculation they have done describes that how of our half, uh, our age is dependent on many other calculation. But when they describe cities, it's actually one of the very unnatural calculation and cities shows unlimited growth. And that's just a mm. huge problem. And they say they show an unlimited growth to a point and then there is no gradual decrease. No, it, it comes to disappear. Zero. Yes. Yeah. Is yeah. yeah that's uh well it's not that I mean, okay, well you can imagine it's I mean you know, let's make an allegories in the other direction. If you start by taking a small amount of cocaine, you will eventually take an infinitely large amount of cocaine, right? In, in fact that the requirement to have more and more is built in, and eventually you just have a heart attack and die. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same. You can pump or a balloon. All right, never mind cocaine. It's balloons. If you pump air into a balloon, eventually it pops. That's uh, yeah. if we're looking for all these, you know, all these various. That's metaphors. a more more user friendly example. Yeah, let's do that one. <laughs> okay. Or whatever it is. Yeah, but yeah. anything that you know, it's it's an inflationary pattern, right? There's, yeah. It's the same with, with with stop busts and booms. I mean, all of those things look like they're going to be brilliant. And look like they're going to go on forever, and then the whole thing just dies. And you know, you can see that throughout the entirety of history. There's, you know, we don't live in the Egyptian, we don't live in the Assyrian Empire anymore for for good reason. Yeah, <laughs> it got yeah. too big, and then it died. Okay. Um, you know, and then people went for smaller things. Okay. You know. Before I or the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Go say it, say it, say it. Finish it. No, no. I'm not going to go into the Bronze Age collapse. No. Well, I mean, this is that's what I'm saying. I I don't think I can go any further. We have reached a yeah. pretty far <laughs> back. But uh, I yeah. do want to before it ends. I do wanted to ask you about. Um, what is your relationship with the flow state or whatever you call that state? I don't know what you, whatever your... I don't know what you mean. Oh, okay. The flow state, what, in terms of your practice? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, flow state, they call it... Uh, Check Send Me High is a researcher who, you know, when... Uh, well, you're, you're, when you're writing without your prefrontal critical self, which hmm. is completely editing, but sometimes right. you just really feeling like that you are just the medium you know how yeah, sure. how, uh, how uh, people describe it so how's your relationship with that how do you go in flow state and check it back what's your well i mean it's i mean it's we don't call it the flow state in in creative writing but that is it's pretty solid on from our discipline which is a, a you need to get yourself into a state in which you're not paying attention to yourself Right. Essentially, you're just typing uh, and the, your fingers are, are essentially transcribing, acting as a medium for whatever it is that you're you're thinking about. And, and that comes through. The more sophisticated you get as a practitioner, the more like finished writing that seems. Uh, but essentially, you're just acting as a conduit for whatever is um, 
you can use the metaphor of the unconscious from the Freudian end that is just bubbling up from from your unconscious you're fantasizing in your riffing in the same way that you would do if you were you know composing a piece of music on the fly and then you you just let that excuse me let that run and generally for me that that takes place over a course of a, a rather limited time period until I have sufficient words to make up the length of the book uh, or I reach the end of a set narrative, a kind of narrative that I was thinking of. And basically you try and be as hands off with that as possible. So I start a new document every day. Uh, I riff on whatever word is the theme that I imagined I got to the end of last time. Uh, and then I let that run until I can't do it anymore. Uh, and then I do the same the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Basically not really thinking about it, not looking at it, not dealing with it at all, with the exception of um, occasionally anxiously wondering what, what it is that I'm doing and then and trying to remember, you know, what I was doing with these characters in these places, how I was fantasizing around their lives uh, at the end of the last session. And then I begin the next and then the four brain editorial process happens on top of that. So the process of kind of communing with the muse, which is a kind of even earlier pre-Freudian way of, of describing it, uh, is, is as free as it possibly can be. And then the rest of the material, the intellectualizing over the top of it comes later. And then after that, there's the whole, you know, kind of practical um, corporate end of getting the thing published do you, and changing do, it in ways that, you know, the reader might like. Do you, do you think that, you know, about the 10,000 hours of, uh, you know, that the thing about that if you have invested somehow 10,000 hours into a craft, then it's much easier for you on the go to be, you know, go into the muse or. Uh... Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to do the same thing all the time, certainly. Um, if you try and do different things all the time, then, you know, a, a little bit, but not as much by any stretch of the imagination. I think 10,000 hours is a, is a kind of very arbitrary seeming amount. Um, and often you meet people who are just, who seem to be naturally good um, and capable of doing whatever it is that they do brilliantly well. There are lots of, of young students who come who definitely haven't put in 10,000 hours, who have what you would uh, otherwise have to call talent. Uh, and they're, they're, they're capable of producing very good material, uh, very young. Um, I think where the craft comes into it, it is, is in flexibility as much as anything. Um, so I think it's, it's both a matter of being able to master uh, the basic techniques, but also to be able to deal with things, uh, more than one thing, uh, and to do things uh, in response to other people's requirements of you. So I think the better at, at it you get, uh, the more likely you are to be able to say, uh, to rewrite a manuscript on the basis of the fact that somebody required something else from it. So, you know, change your heroine into a hero uh, or set it in Greece. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. Yeah. You can make those accommodations skillfully without making yourself feel like you've done something different um, unless you don't know what you're doing, at which point then you just have to throw your hands in the air and start something else. Um, so, yeah, I think practice definitely makes perfect. And all of these other platitudes... Um, and you do have to put the hours in uh, and you do have to develop your skills and your range of behaviors. But it may be that once you've got 10,000 hours in, then subsequent hours to that aren't improving you and maybe reducing your ability <laughs> because uh, I think sometimes there's a tendency to, to travel over old ground uh, and, and, and thereby do the same thing repeatedly. 
or to try to make whatever it is that you're doing sufficiently the same as the last thing that you did so that you don't have to put as much effort in because you've become used to your craftsmanship uh, and you don't like it when it feels uncomfortable, which is why I think it's always good to do different stuff because then you aren't, you're still having that kind of enthusiastic engagement with the craft that you did when you were younger and that carried you through to this point uh, rather than you know, just trying to grind out whatever the next thing is that someone's asked you to do. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm actually looking forward. I've read a bit of, uh, you know, a blurb from your, for the new book. Uh, yeah. Well, one day it'll come out. So fingers crossed. Deeply. Any, anything to do with the uh, underground or our shadows? I am yeah, hooked. <laughs> You're all over. Good. Yeah, 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 What's yeah. your general area of, of expertise? Oh, um, yeah. Well, it is to do with self, uh, conscious yeah. altering experiences. Okay. Uh, so yeah, real and reality and also some sort of uh, artificial intelligence, which is, I, I would like to maybe nice. call it transcendence intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, which is just yeah. so overused at this point that everything is artificial intelligence. Yeah, so, sure. so mostly, yeah, conscious altering, experiencing, learning itself, um, you know, yeah. so that's what I'm personally really, really interested in. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of interesting material there. I mean, frightening, uh, but interesting too. I mean, it, particularly in the, in, I mean, it would be useful for this pandemic stuff. I mean, pattern recognition and neural nets and those kind of things that, you know, you're going to become very useful, I would imagine. There's lots of interesting stuff that I was seeing recently about the ability of um, neural nets to recognize not the causes of things like cancer, but the effects in large epidemiological studies that means that they could then work back to see who had who was likely to have which particular disease at any given time on the basis of their presentation despite them not having any pathological symptoms yeah and those kind of like like very wide and very deep thought um, activities would seem to be ideal for non-human in, uh, intelligences that's a that's a new hope which i don't know how I haven't checked it very recently, but it's to do with mm. quantum computing. They are yeah. trying to under, well, at one point they're trying to figure out neural networks, which is mm. not just predictive uh, stats, simple yeah. algorithms, but truly neural networks, which can communicate with each other and then built up as we, as a, as a kid builds up by interacting yeah. with the world and understanding in the yeah, safety. And coming up with its own solutions. Yeah. 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 Did you watch Devs? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. Could you imagine <laughs> that I actually started watching it just yesterday and finished three episodes? I'm going to binge watch it tonight. It's nicely done. I mean, it's I don't good. agree with its position on determinism, Same. but I won't tell you what happens at the end. Oh, so. please don't. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't. I think he has, I think he has talked, uh, he has looked into string theory and he has looked into uh, quantum physics, uh, but not yeah. enough, because yeah, sure. what he is talking about, there are some other physicists whose theories are really well known. Would tell you yeah. about quantum physics, wave function, uh, and oh, yeah, some of the things. Which, I mean, yeah, the, the the more specific the his mouthpiece characters are on the science, the less convincing the whole thing becomes. If they just keep their gob shut about it, then you could imagine your own physics into it because some of it is, is kind of, it's, you know, it's the kind of stuff that you'd have talked about when you're at school. 
you know, and with your mates, oh, you know, imagine if type stuff. But, you know, it's, it's still entertainingly done. And it's nice it's, to see that guy out of parks and recreations, you know, like widening his, his yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, choice. Yeah, he is a different type of director, to be honest. He's really engaged yeah. in philosophy and science and, and has a lot of subtext. He, and it's hard. I mean, you, you, you want to be, like, um, popular and you want people to be able to understand what you're saying. So you can't do it too complicatedly yeah um yeah i do think that his yes please (laughs) tell me what you think of the end when eventually you oh yeah yeah for sure for sure for sure perfect okay brilliant thanks a lot alex yeah it was great you're welcome yeah yeah i would would love to do something in the studio uh sometime when we are we are out of this if they ever allow us back into the campus i guess yeah 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 perfect thank you okay see you later yeah see you soon Bye. Bye -bye. bye bye